All right. This is Matthew E. May, and you're listening to Radio Free Leaders. Welcome to Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Burkis, best-selling author and recovering academic, and this is the show that tears down the wall between the ivory tower and the corner office. Each episode brings you an outstanding thinker to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date with Radio Free Leader and get some great stuff we don't share on the show by joining our community. You can sign up on the show notes page for this episode at davidberkuscom slash 719 or text Radio Free right there on your phone to 33444. We'll even get you caught up with our Radio Free Leader Starter Kit, a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox so you can listen in just one click. We'll also send you a bunch of other resources to help you lead smarter. Again, that's davidberkuscom slash 710, or if you're listening on your phone, just go over to messages and text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. Today's episode features Matthew May. Matthew is a good friend of mine and a brilliant mind. We've had him on the show previously for his book, The Laws of Subtraction, And he's back. And now instead of the laws of subtraction, he has the seven fatal flaws. So we go from laws to flaws, the seven fatal flaws of our thinking. The book is winning the brain game. The insights in this episode are going to help you figure out why we leap to solutions that don't work, why we fixate on mindsets that keep us kind of stuck, why we overthink problems, and even worse, why we kill solutions that other people come up with and how to get out of them. If you've ever been in a problem-solving session that went nowhere or you've ever tried to solve a problem and kept getting stuck on the same wrong solutions, then this episode is for you, as is Matt's book, Winning the Brain Game. So without further ado, our interview with Matthew May. So who are you and what do you do? My name is Matthew E. May, and I'm an innovation strategist, coach, author, speaker, Day job is basically working with uh, with teams to track down elegant solutions to complex problems. And you have been up to actually quite a few things since we last uh, had you on the show. Um, we're we're here mostly under the um, we're here to celebrate uh, winning the brain game, the, the new book. Um, first, let's talk about this because you've sort of made your. Um, reputation, dare I say, or you've made it your um, sort of niche to help people find, and I love that you said it even there, elegant solutions to complex problems. Let's, can we talk a little bit about sort of what is finding elegant solutions? How does that differ from what most people think of when they think of just problem solving or brainstorming or or whatever? What's, what makes it so elegant? Uh, Well, the definition um, that I use is uh, for an elegant solution is one that achieves the uh, maximum effect with the minimum means. Hmm. and you can see examples of that in, in a variety of, of domains. Um, in, in the medical world, it's called Occam's razor, right? It's it's the simplest solution that explains all of the all of the symptoms. And it really came about when I was working with Toyota as a um, as an advisor, a fully retained advisor, uh, back in the uh, the early two thousands. And m- I was I was you know working as an instructional designer and I was hired to help them uh, build out the the knowledge work side uh, in terms of being better problem solvers and they had this sort of annoying mantra uh, that made my life rather difficult and it was people don't want our products and services they want solutions when it comes to solutions simple is good elegant is better and the problem was nobody really defined for me what what an elegant solution was. How did I know an elegant idea from one? And it's the exact same question that you just, 
you just ask me. And I could tell by virtue of the fact that certain ideas got rejected. Anything that was, you know, confusing, hard to use, wasteful, uh, unnatural, hazardous, uh, even ugly, got rejected. But nobody really bothered to define it for me. And it took uh, quite a few years before I settled on something that was uh, accessible and palatable um, to the point that I could teach it. Um, but the difference between an elegant solution and one that isn't, um, you know, you, you don't need an elegant solution to figure out uh, how, to, how to avoid uh, traffic in the morning uh, to get to work. You just need a workaround. You don't need an elegant solution when you're making a decision uh, whether you're having a, a tall vente or grande at Starbucks today. They don't require deeper thinking. They don't require uh, you to uh, examine the complexities of the problem. And they certainly don't need minimum resources. So I, I guess that's the basic difference. Hmm. So, I mean, you know, I love the definition, this idea that the, the maximum effort, it, 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 the Occam's razor of problem solving, right? Maximum, maximum uh, results, minimum effort. But I guess one of the things that, that I struggle with, and now I'm just getting free consulting from you uh, under the guise of a podcast, is how do you know before you start what's going to be that maximum result, minimum effort? You know, in other words, you, you're working through um, to solve a problem, and let's say you have two or three options that the process has led you, how do you, how do you choose between them? Well, you don't know going in. Um, and that's why creativity and innovation and innovative thinking is required. Um, you know, if the, the greatest artist in the world uh, thought that he was going to paint a masterpiece at the beginning, um, you know, gosh, what a wonderful world that would be. But you really don't know until that solution lands. Um, does that make does that make sense? I mean, it's, yeah. It's well, that was that was my to know. that was my exact issue. Was like, ha, okay, so you can't know, right? So no, no. I mean, you can define you can find an uh, you can define an ideal um, at the at the beginning of of any project, what the ideal future might be or the desired future. Um, the nature of how you get there and how elegant uh, and how elegantly you get there um, is is an emergent. Uh, process. Um, gosh, you never really know. And elegant solutions are rare. So they're not easy. Um, they're not natural. They're not intuitive. Um, but it lands us on the doorstep of the kind of thinking that's required to to achieve them. Yeah. And, and you know, I, so it was a bit of a setup. I wanted to ask you that for, for a couple of reasons. The, the first was sort of emphasize that it is a process, right? I think in business, we're so used to the idea of let's just, we'll do an offsite and we'll leave for two days. And when we come back, we'll have it. Right? And, yeah. <laughs> and, and no, it's an emergent process. You've got to be ready to pivot. You've got to be ready to learn from your uh, initial investment of energy so that every, at every step you're sort of able to get a better result with in energy, et cetera. Um, and then you, you also, uh, you, you said it perfectly, uh, in way of a segue into this idea that even when you're engaged in the process, there's a way of thinking that can really block that. And that's really the, the subject of the new book, Winning the Brain Game, is like, like looking at, what are the seven deadly sins or, or seven fatal flaws of that thinking process and where we can sort of go awry? I'm assuming that's what led to the inspiration to sort of write this book is you noticed that these are the things that derail that process. But uh, I'll let you tell me. Well, interestingly enough, this was a, an emergent process and the book um, almost wasn't. Um, I've, I started giving a Back in the year 2005, I was, I was teaching a, a course at the University of Toyota called um, Practical uh, or Principled Problem Solving. And as an icebreaker, I was looking for an icebreaker to, to kick things off and get people sort of right brain um, working. 
Um, you know, in the corporate world, we're so action oriented. We've got a goal. We track it down. It's a fairly linear um, kind of approach. And I found the little icebreaker based on a real business uh, situation, turned it into a thought exercise and just used it as an icebreaker. And as I began teaching the course and, and more and more people came through to the point where we were several hundred, um, I, I sat back one day and I said, huh, people aren't solving this simple problem. It's a simpler it's problem than what they solve on, you know, in their real world, real job. Um, and at the same time, not only are they not solving it, they're exhibiting these kind of repetitive behaviors. And I just kept going along. I had no intention of studying it like a scientist or a scholar. Um, but gosh, 10 years later, and I kept using, even when I left Toyota, I kept using uh, that icebreaker um, or variations of it. I had two or three that I use um, depending on the audience and the age of the audience and the functionality of, of the folks in the room um, in terms of their job functions. But I used it over after I left Toyota. I used it in um, in workshops, in speeches, in seminars. Uh, it's one of my poor, more popular uh, keynote addresses because it's interactive. And just lo and behold, after uh, 10 years of doing this, literally 10 years, um, and hundreds of thousands of people, the evidence was sort of banging me on the head that time and time again, people exhibit these certain kinds of behaviors. And I don't know why it's seven. It just turned out to be these things. There's no magic around that number. But the evidence is sort of overwhelming. And it got to the point where I had talked about some of these things in previous books. I've talked about them in speeches, um, talked about them in seminars and workshops. And I didn't think I was going to write a book about it. But um, folks in my life said, you, you know, you really need to stick this in a book. Um, and do a little digging. What's the why behind the what? what? What's the science and what's the psychology of of what's going on? Why do people exhibit these sort of thinking patterns? And that's what I did. I dug into some neuroscience. I have some neuroscientist folks that I know, um, some psychologists that I know, and I tapped some of the best thinkers uh, that I know to help me not only track down the causes of these, these uh, patterns, these thinking flaws, um, but determine what an appropriate fix might be. I had used different fixes, different techniques in creative problem-solving sessions, real-world sessions over the years. I had some that I used, but others smarter than me had others that they had used. And so I wrapped it all into a, a little book. And that is the, uh, you know, it was not intended to be a book. It was never, I, I had no uh, conception of, of writing a book about this from the get-go. So it's sort of I guess underscores your point. Well, isn't isn't it funny how the idea just sort of sometimes it never leaves you alone, right? And so you've just kind of kind of get give in and be like, oh, okay. So yeah, and I and I'm glad you did because it's a really enjoyable. I mean, as you know, uh, I'm all about, and so by extension, uh, I guess the only people who would be interested in listening to the show are all about what are the the well researched that what does the science tell us about this? But then how do we bridge that gap? And you, you do it in Winning the Brain Game between neuroscience and psychology. You really dive into the science of how we think and how we think improperly, right? And how we should think and how we can sort of bend all that. I don't want to give away the store. I don't want to give all seven. But it is, do you mind if I just ask sort of what's, what's one of the most prominent ones and, and sort of why it happens and then how we ought to fix it so people can get a sense for what you do with each of these seven? 
Sure. Um, we could probably actually bookend it. We could talk about the most prevalent, and we could also perhaps talk about the deadliest. Okay. Yeah. That's, I mean, <laughs> I was the assuming fatal, they were the same the one, but that's Because they're great. different. They're, okay. they're, they're two different. So the, the most prevalent, um, if I were to give you a, a problem to solve, um, and maybe you're a part of a, a small team, and I handed you a problem, it would be extremely difficult for you at this point in your career, in your life, to refrain from leaping to a solution and begin tossing out ideas. We are so good at brainstorming. It's been so drummed into us that we need an answer and we need it quickly. Oh, but isn't that the old that maxim, that, right? Like, don't come to me with problems, come to me with solutions? Yeah, yeah. And it, you know, it's, but it's interesting because, um, you know, if you have young children, you'll notice that before they get into preschool and then kindergarten, first grade, they're, the way that they interact with the world is far different from how they interact with it uh, once they're in that school system. Because they're all about, before they get in the school system, they're all about curiosity. Um, you know, I remember quite clearly uh, my daughter when she was about a year and a half old, when we would walk to the, the mailbox in our, in our um, development here, it's all of about 50 yards. I can do it in about 30 seconds. With her, it takes about, you know, 20, 30 minutes because she's curious about everything. She's touching everything, tasting everything, asking why, you know, as she got older and was able to talk. Um, but it's all about questions and learning and absorbing. And then when we get into the school system, we don't ask the questions anymore. The teacher does, and we need the answer. But that is the most prominent, prevalent thing that I noticed is as soon as you give a problem out, people by default go into brainstorming and uh, solutioning. And it's, it's natural, not just because of, of school and, and getting the right answer for the boss, but it's most of the problems that we solve every day. Um, like, for example, you and I are talking uh, probably, what, midday. You and I have probably solved 50 or 60 problems already today, but they are of the routine nature. They don't require an elegant solution. They require a workaround. Um, fire, uh, you know, firefighting, if you will. And because we're so good at that, it, it sort of seeps over into problems that are more complex in nature. And what happens is we leap to a conclusion, jump to a solution, and lo and behold, it doesn't solve the problem. But that's the most prevalent, um, is, is leaping to a solution. Hmm. Yeah, and, and I, I love that you touched on the school thing, because this is, as a, as a parent whose son is about to head into you know, pre-K and then kindergarten, I'm, I'm terrified of this idea that that'll sort of rub off on him. And, you know, you, if you keep pointing out problems, you get cast as a troublemaker instead of as the person who's helping to actually explore the issue. So how do we, yeah, how do we solve yeah. this? How do we cultivate people who will keep coming, coming to, to their, their leaders with problems instead of solutions? Oh, well, I don't know if there is a, an elegant solution to that one, but I know that there is a fix for, for leaping to solutions. And it's not what, what others out there tout. Um, there's an entire uh, programmatic approach to problem solving that slows everything down. And we can't, I don't think we can afford that. And I learned long ago that if you try and stop people from this instinctive leaping to solutions, you will fail. And at some point in this 10 years, um, I decided to go with the flow to go with the instinct to act, but leverage it in, in, and redirect it in sort of an Aikido way. Um, and the fix that I use for this is called framestorming. 
most problems um, are solved when they're solved elegantly. It's because they've the problem has been framed in a unique way. We most of us don't even bother to frame the problem. We accept it as it's been given to us, and we don't reframe it. We don't rethink it, and we march into the ideation mode. But frame storming is is using our instinct to leap and to do something. But instead of coming up with solutions, we come up with questions. Um, you know, why, what, if, and how kinds of questions. Sort of all of the, 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 the stuff that we all write about, you know, the what if, the power of the what if, and the power of the how, and, and why, why, why. Um, and instead of generating a, a bunch of ideas and solutions right away, you generate a bunch of questions. And when you do that, um, usually... Uh, with great consistency, you will find one that all of a sudden people goes, people will go, huh, you know what? That's an interesting way to look at the problem. And then the ideation kicks in, and lo and behold, your ideas are far more divergent, uh, far more creative um, than they might be otherwise. Um, as far as the answer to the, to the system, <laughs> the school system and the, and the job system and getting the right answer and all of that, um, I don't have a... I don't have a, a, a ready answer for you. It's certainly the subject of a lot of speakers um, out there and a lot of writers, yourself included. So Yeah, yeah. well, we'll figure it out eventually. We, we can't. <laughs> well, first, we've got to do some framestorming around what actually shapes this whole problem. So, so that is the, that's the most prevalent. What about the most uh, dangerous? The, the, the most dangerous is, um, is what I call self-censoring, and my, my handy term for it is ideaside. Um, and it goes hand in hand with, with you know, this whole notion of getting the wrong answer in, in school. But it's when we kill our own ideas before they're even born. Uh, we do that all the time. Why? Well, we're, we're afraid of being criticized. We're afraid of being rejected. And then, because we're afraid of that, we squelch our own creativity. We stifle our own innovative uh, inklings. We table that idea before it ever you know, sees the light of day, before it's ever born. And then, lo and behold, someone comes out with the exact same idea, and you slap yourself on the, the forehead and go, you know what? I, that's my idea. I thought of that. Well, yeah, a lot of people probably thought of it, but it's the ones that have the courage to, to, to fail and try that idea out um, in, a, in a mindful way um, that, that succeed. So it's self-censorship. It's ideaside. It's, uh, and gosh, it, the very first time we're ridiculed in, in school or in a, in a you know, group setting when we're young, the very first time um, someone says no, the very first time we experience what it is to get an F, on a report card, um, it sort of colors the rest of our life, and we try to avoid failure, which, as you know, and you've written about uh, creativity, um, creativity demands testing. It demands experimentation. It demands an ethos of curiosity. It demands uh, failure. Uh, nothing, nothing is for sure. So that's the deadliest, is, is when we censor our own thoughts before they, uh, they ever see the light of day. And I see this time and time again with teams. And people will come up to me after a, after a session and go, you know, I, I had the idea, but I, I didn't want to say anything. Didn't want to rock the boat. Or, gosh, you know, my manager was at the table, and, and he thinks differently. And that's just deadly. That is just pure to me... Um, it's just it's a it's the highest crime of creativity. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So how do we, um, I love this term idea side. So how do we help others not commit idea side or how do we save ourselves from committing idea side? Uh, there is a technique that, um, I got to speak with, with a couple individuals about this. Um, one was a neuroscientist and the other is a psychologist. Uh, the neuroscientist actually deals with people who have probably the most debil- debilitating mental illness um, yet are still functional, which is OCD, ex- obsessive compulsive disorder. And he teaches them to think differently in order to change the wiring in their brain and thus their behaviors. And he, in order to do that, he uses a technique that is centuries old, uh, first introduced to the world by uh, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Adam Smith in his book Before Wealth of Nations. And it's called The Impartial Spectator, which is the ability to stand outside of yourself, beside yourself, and coach yourself as an objective advisor would. He uses it very effectively in a drug-free regimen to uh, allow people to escape their brain lock, uh, which is what his term is for OCD. The other person I talked to was Ellen Langer, who wrote a book uh, 25 years ago called Mindfulness. And not to be confused with the Eastern variety of mindfulness that is synonymous with meditation, um, mindfulness in her world is being present, noticing things from a different perspective, and um, taking that perspective once you realize um, that there is that perspective. And all of this is wrapped into the term self-distancing. Distance yourself from your situation, your stress, your problem. Ever notice, for example, how, how it's easier to solve someone else's problem than it is to solve your own problems? Because you have a different perspective. You have that outsider perspective. You're not attached. You don't have the emotional connection, the intellectual investment in the way things are, which, are, which is based on, in history and on past experience. And so it's a mindful thinking approach, um, best called uh, self-distancing. And psychologists use a uh, technique of talking to yourself as you would a third person. Um, you know, one of my favorite examples of this is, um, uh, uh, gosh, um, I don't know if you remember um, when uh, she's now a, a Nobel Peace Prize winner, Mulala, uh, wrote a book about it. Um, you know, the young girl that was attacked by Taliban on the bus and shot. Um, when she talked to John, uh, uh, on the John, oh gosh, what's his last name, David, <laughs> on the Daily Show, John Stewart, John Stewart. Yeah, on yeah, the yeah. Daily Show, she t- she told her story from a third person. And she said Malala would do this, and Malala would do, do that, as if it was not her from her first person perspective. And psychologists now have studied this, and when you talk to yourself, self-talk in a third person, you distance yourself from the problem in much the same way an objective advisor would, which is a very long explanation to a fairly simple technique of self-distancing um, using that impartial spectator concept. So it's pretty effective, and I, use it, um, I used it recently um, in an article that, that I submitted um, and looked at things from a different perspective. Um, what would happen if I did get rejected? What good things could happen if I did get rejected? I did get rejected, yet good things happened. And so it was a, uh, a distancing approach, and I gave myself a, a good dose of advice to to actually succeed after failure. Hmm. Hmm. No, I think that's that's fascinating. And, you know, it reminds me, I remember doing some uh, writing a piece long, long time ago about the idea of how 
when we give someone a problem and we ask them to solve it with themselves as the person facing the problem or we, we ask them to solve it for someone else, they actually come up with more creative solutions for someone else. I think there's a lot to that idea of getting out of your own head. I think it's, yeah. I think it's brilliant and a, and a powerful example of these different fatal flaws and also how we can, um, how we can work around them. Uh, to to keep committing idea aside, but also to just keep getting at more uh, elegant solutions. The book, again, if you want to know more of those, is Winning the Brain Game, Fixing the Seven Fatal Flaws of Thinking. Matt, I wondered if we could transition from the book to you and ask you our five questions for all guests. The first being, what's the best advice you've ever received? Uh, well, I, I would have answered it differently um, six months ago. Um, but the best advice is, I, I sort of just mentioned it, from Ellen Langer. She told me a story um, when we chatted about mindfulness, and it's the very final thought um, in this particular book, which is when you realize things look different from a different perspective, take that perspective. Adopt it. Make it yours. Um, that's, right now, that's my, that, that's my kind of mantra uh, if you will. I love it. I love it. It reminds me of um, Adam Grant once once said in some interview, the idea of like, um, speak as if you're right, but listen as if you're wrong, right? Be open to that idea of taking on the other mindset when you're listening. I think it's, I think it's great. Uh, question two, what's an average day look like for you? Uh, an average day. Is there such a thing? You know, <laughs> I, I ask this question of every guest and that's the more common response. Well, there's not really an average day, but you know, let's, let's assume you're at home. What does the average day look like? Boy, if I'm at home, if I'm lucky enough to be at home and I'm not at a, at a client site or I'm not at a speaking engagement, uh, if I'm lucky to be at home, my day would be split between a few hours of writing um, and a few hours of riding. Hmm. I am a, uh, I'm a mountain biker. And if I'm home, I will, I will, you know, by hook or by crook, figure out a way I can get out on a trail for at least an hour um, if I'm home. So uh, an average day... Uh, any given day, probably, uh, if I'm home, consists of a bit of work and a bit of play. That's great. Um, I, I love the work and play I idea. I wish I had more play and a little less work. But uh, third question, what are you reading right now? Uh, what am I reading right now? Well, uh, funny you mentioned um, Adam Grant. I do have that on on my Kindle, as well as a book um, uh, at a Harvard Business press called matchmakers which is the notion of multi-sided business platforms hmm. Hmm. so um but but adam's new book um and i know you know him uh originals um that's uh that's on the reading list as well as the other so it's so you know one is kind of um about creativity and creative people uh the other is about creative business models and innovative business models from a fairly unique perspective yeah i love it love it what do you believe that most people don't? Boy, that's a great question. What do I believe that most people don't? Uh, that things, um, I guess it's 50-50, but that things do happen for a reason. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't want to get into a, a, a hairy story here, um, but I had a brush with death about uh, four months ago. Um, had what most would consider to be a, a, a fatal heart attack. I flatlined when I was riding my bike. And luckily, I was able to, to uh, have people rescue me. But my, my outlook on life um, hasn't necessarily changed, um, but that things do happen for a reason. And I have to believe that um, I survived um, 
uh, a massive heart attack for a reason. Um, not everyone believes that. Um, a lot of people believe that uh, you know the, the the universe is in in charge and just throw up your hands and wish for the best. But uh, I think there's a uh, an order to things. Um, but I don't know if I'm in the majority on that. So I don't know what's your what's your reaction to that. I don't know. I mean, I think I think there's a lot of people who like to feel that way. And I th- but I think the more common uh, response is we re- we respond to most events as if we're so lucky or so and so is so lucky when nice things happen to them, etc. So. Um, I think you're right, and I'm I'm in a very similar boat around that idea that everything that that there's a reason that led to uh, what caused things. Now, whether that yeah. whether that's a metaphysical answer or not, now that now we're getting into how many people believe it. Um, but I'm with you there. All right. So, final question: the name of the show is Radio Free Leader. In your opinion, what makes someone a leader? Well, I do have a definition of leadership, and it revolves uh, around a few very simple words, and I learned it from. Uh, a mentor of mine from years ago when I was working at Toyota, and that a, a leader is one who creates meaningful change. So those three words, creates, meaningful, and change. Creation, uh, the notion of, of bringing into existence something that wasn't there before. Um, meaningful, meaning that there is a, a reason it matters, there is a purpose, it, it, there's a benefit and a value somewhere. And change being something new, um, not and and better, uh, not just new, but but better. Um, so creates meaningful change. That's my definition of a leader. Hmm. I love it. Love it. The book again, winning the brain game, fixing the seven fatal flaws of thinking. Matt, our time is already up, but I want to thank you so much for returning to the show. Uh, and blowing our minds once again, in this case, actually setting them free. Um, but in, again, a, a deep and meaningful discussion. Thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. My pleasure. Nice to talk to you again. 